Romans chapter 1, don't stand just yet. That's where we'll be tonight, Romans chapter 1. Tonight, we're going to focus on the idea that gratitude is tied to our happiness. Our individual happiness, our corporate happiness is fundamentally tied to our willingness and our, our obe- obedience to be grateful people. So stand with me tonight if you would. I'm going to use Romans chapter 1 as a launching pad for tonight for our ideas. And then we'll ask the Lord to help us find a point of application for each of our hearts. So Romans chapter 1 verse 18. The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And, and not to overplay the sermon from this morning, but doesn't that paint that phrase a little different from the idea this morning that that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and it's coming and it's coming one day and this Bible says an unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, it's not that they didn't know Him. It's not that they didn't know who He was. It wasn't even necessarily that they didn't go to church. It wasn't necessarily that they didn't know the Bible, had never been exposed to Jesus Christ. Paul says that they're without excuse. He said, because when they knew God, and, and, and that would apply to us tonight, that they glorified him not as God. And then this key phrase tonight, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. Let's pray tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the music that we've heard this morning and tonight and participated in, uh, in ascribing worth and worship to you, Lord, and you are worthy of that. Lord, thank you for the truths that we participated in and already applied to our hearts today through song and message and lesson. And Father, I pray as we look once more at your word, you'd help us to find application for our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As Paul wrote this letter, he was planning a visit to Rome, and as he began to write this letter, we would find that this would be the longest letter that the Apostle Paul would write. It was in anticipation of this letter, and he makes the case for the world-transforming news about Jesus Christ. It was news that welcomed both Jew and Gentile, and to us, that wouldn't mean as much today as it did to them, but this was a big deal. Everyone was welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, and into the family of God. And as he was writing this letter, he is inviting the hearers into the support and the expansion of this great news. 
hey, we get to participate in this. This isn't just something we hear. It's something that we actively do. We flesh this out. We accept the plan of salvation. We accept Jesus Christ. And then it's our responsibility to have, be a conduit and share that good news with the world. And certainly that's what Paul did with his life. He labors hard in the first part of the letter to prove to all that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He came to save the world from their sin. And that faith in Him is the only way to heaven. And it's a gift. And he labors this point. It's a gift that is freely given. In fact, to the Corinthians, in what would really maybe be his third letter, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, he says this, Thanks be unto God, and he uses these words, for his unspeakable gift. Unspeakable is the idea of that which cannot be uttered. There are no words to describe it. The best of us, the most eloquent among us, could not even begin to use words to describe how precious and how wonderful the precious gift of salvation is and what Christ has done for us. And so in the first chapter of Romans, we come to people who knew God. They knew about Him. The Bible says that they knew Him. They weren't ignorant of God. But they failed in this measure. They failed to worship God. They failed to ascribe to Him the glory that was due to Him. They failed to truly recognize in their hearts, sure, they sang the songs, and yeah, they showed up for services, and yeah, they went through all the motions, and they looked and dressed the part. And we should do all of those things. There's nothing wrong with those things. Those things should should be manifest in our lives. But inside, it wasn't real. And they weren't ascribing worth and worship and glory to Him. And it came down to this, and and Paul says this, and he highlights this idea. It wasn't just they didn't worship God. They didn't worship God for this reason. They weren't thankful. They weren't thankful to Him. As was preached this morning, they failed to recognize and to receive the goodness of God. And this idea leads us ultimately to verse 26 and the verses that follow. For this reason or this cause... God gave them up to vile affections. He let them go. If you want to choose that, then you're going to receive the reward of that choice. God doesn't restrain us. God gives us choice. But we don't get to choose the consequences of those choices. And God says, you don't want to be thankful? You don't want to worship me? That leads you somewhere. And it led them to a very dark place. And the point is this. A grateful heart would have rescued them from pain and sorrow and disappointment and ultimately God's judgment, both in this life and the one to come. But it wouldn't just have rescued them. See, gratitude's not a neutral state, and we said that last week. Gratitude isn't for those who are neutral in their mindset. It's for those who are actively thinking. It would have also led them to freedom and to joy and to happiness. God did so much for them just as He has for us. And He sent us an unspeakable gift. He has given us the wonder of life, the beauty of this world to live in. And yet sometimes all we do is regurgitate and focus on what the news suggests we focus and think about. And we're focused on the political landscape. And we think of how many things we don't have and how miserable our lives are, and how ugly the world is, and those things are true. 
But if that's what we allow our minds to focus on, and if that's where our thinking takes us without resisting it and without fighting back and without actively thinking positive, good, grateful thoughts, then our spirits and our lives suffer as a result. And it's not long before we find ourselves in the same place. People who know God, but don't worship Him as God. And neither are we thankful. Typically, when you ask other people what they ultimately really want in life, they will give a variety of answers. And answers might be like this. um, The idea of belonging. A few years ago, we came up with the slogan, A Place to Belong, because we know that inside the human heart is this desire for belonging. People want to belong to a family. People want a group of friends to whom they belong. We would ultimately say, what I really want in life maybe is health or financial security. Some people just want more hair. (laughs) No names. Did you know that when it rains and you start to lose your hair, rain just kind of runs down your head and into your eyes? I'm discovering that more and more. But when people are pushed, why do you want more hair? or family or friends or health and security. Why do you want these things? The answer is almost always the same. They want to be happy. See, the major decisions that we make in life often pivot on our thinking that that will make me happy. And so the person that we marry, um, uh, the church that we attend, maybe the job that we, we, we work at, or, 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 or the friends that we choose, the vacation that we go to, the financial decisions we make, career choices, these are all chosen subliminally sometimes, but often intentionally with our happiness in mind. When it comes to measuring happiness, social scientists have come to believe that each person, each individual person, has a happiness set point. And I'm going to take a moment to define that. A set point is a desired value. Okay, so let me illustrate this tonight. At your home, I would assume that we all have a thermostat in, 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 a, in America. Uh, mine is controlled from my phone. All right, that's how fancy I am. So there's a thermostat at, at my house, presumably yours, and let's just take 72 degrees, maybe an average temperature that most people would have their set at, and it would go above and below that. But let's just say the temperature is set at 72 degrees. Okay, your, that is your set point, and your unit, the air conditioning, the heater, is going to adjust. So if it gets up to 76 degrees, what does the air conditioning unit do? Well, it's going to kick in and bring it back down to its set point. If it drops below that, the heater kicks in. It's going to bring it up to that, that, that exact temperature. That's the set point, and that's the point at which the unit is going to work to achieve. Okay, so according to this idea, people have happiness set points that they return to following disruptive life events. Now, disruptive life events can be something that's really good, and it can be something that's really bad. But it's a set point, and they're going to come back to that point. Sometimes really great things can happen, like a big purchase, a vacation, a life event, a child is born, a grandchild. But in a few months, that happiness will come down. So here's this warmth. It comes back down, moves to back to what it was before. Some researchers argue that this tendency is so innate and it is so strong within us that working to alter one's happiness state is futile 
because inevitably you are always going to return to your happiness set point. So you can work at it. You could try to be a happier person. Well, you can really pull up your straps and just do everything you can, but it's really futile because you're just going to return to that point. And this process in which we return to our characteristic level of happiness after a short time following good and bad events is known as hedonic adaptation. People adapt to circumstances. Good eventually gets taken for granted. And I recently traveled to Peru with Elizabeth and we were in some really poor areas. And I am thinking, wow, this is amazing. I have it so good. I land back in America. I'm so grateful. It's been a few weeks. And all the good I saw, I still see it and think about it, but not as frequently. Understand? Good gets taken for granted in our lives. And obstacles are adjusted to. People adapt. We return to the happiness level that is natural for us. That's our set point. Okay, so there was a famous study done on this. Lots of studies have been done on this, on hedonic adaptation. But this one goes like this. These psychologists compared the well-being and the reported happiness of two very different groups. Those who had just won the lottery and those who had suffered devastating spinal cord injuries. Okay, so here's, here's someone whose life was just significantly altered because of a spinal cord injury. Here's someone whose life was significantly altered because they won the lottery. Okay, so two very different groups. Of course, they would always have in research a control group or would be the group that was based on a neutral state. They concluded that lottery winners were less happy than most of us would expect. And here was the surprising part, not significantly happier than the control group. And that individuals with spinal cord injury injuries were happier than they would ever have dreamed and expected. So then the, our, the logic goes like this. Where does our set point come from? So here's these people with spinal cord injuries. Here are these people that won the lottery. Here's, here's the control group, of course. And, and, and obviously, these people are happier than we thought. And these people are not as happy. But, but maybe it just comes down to this, our genetics. In other words, you're just born that way. Some people are genetically programmed that no matter what happens, they're going to smile and be happy. They have a sunny disposition. And some people, no matter what happens, even if the best of days happen to them, they are born with a scowl and they're going to be unhappy. Okay, let me give a few illustrations in the auditorium. <laughs> Not going to do that. Or am I? That's <laughs> my son David would say. Okay, let me give you another illustration. I'm just going to press this point. Uh, hopefully we can connect the dots. Um, you can, you have a set point in terms of your height. Okay, is that genetic? Well, of course it is. Okay, so, so my dad was five foot ten, my mom was five foot four, and I never got out of five foot ten. Now, my brother won the genetic lottery. He's a couple inches taller than I am, okay? Not fair, he just won the lottery, okay? So he, he is taller than me, I can't do anything about that. Now, I have some cowboy boots that I like to put on because they make me taller, right? So, so like the marriage conference is this Friday, now I wear my cowboy boots and feel like I'm a little taller than normal, right? And, and that makes me feel good, but I have to go home. And the cowboy boots have to come off. And so I lose that extra inch. Does that make sense? 
510 is my set point. There are other people on staff who are much shorter than that, but we won't talk about them, all right? <laughs> Even Jesus acknowledged that you can't add height to your stature. Okay, social scientists would argue this. You can't add happiness to your attitude. You were born with a predetermined height, and you were born with a predetermined attitude and disposition. You can go on vacation. You take your spouse, you go somewhere sunny, you soak up the vitamin D, you come back and you're happier, but that happiness, it doesn't last. You're going to adapt back to who you really are. And this concept is where much of the worldly philosophy came, comes from. It is where the people in Romans chapter 1 found themselves. You are who you are. And so make the decisions that make you happy. Don't worry about God. Don't worry about others. You need to be happy. Your happiness is important and you need to pursue that. In Romans chapter 1, they weren't thankful. Okay, let me ask this question. Is the concept of human adaption true? Well, to a degree, yes, it's true. Do you have a set point for happiness determined in part by genetics? Well, in my humble opinion, I do think that that's true. And scientists have done a lot of research on this, and they've made pie charts, and the majority of our happiness set points are determined genetically. They're also determined by how we're, we're raised and our belief structures, but primarily by genetics. Are you limited, though, in your ability to be happy and overcome your genetics? Well, a lot of people would say yes. Here's another question. Can you exceed the barriers of your genetic happiness set point? Okay, well, let me, let me read this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He's a new creature. He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. And behold, all things are become new. Now, does that mean the moment you're saved, you're happier? No. The moment you're saved, you're saved. But you have access now to a power. And if you choose... And you avail yourself to it. You have the Holy Spirit of the God who made this world dwelling inside of you. Bringing to you, if you avail yourself to it, transformative change that the best of minds cannot begin to understand. Social scientists and secular psychologists cannot even begin to understand it. And so here they are in Romans 1. They knew God, but they weren't thankful. They didn't tap into the source, but you can. You absolutely can. And there's this idea tonight that I want us to grasp, and I'm going to take a few minutes and try to break this down. And here's this thought, that expressing, and the emphasis is on the word expressing gratitude, directly counteracts the effects of hedonic adaptation. It counteracts the effects. See, your happiness set point doesn't have limits when gratitude is consistently found in your heart. Now, it absolutely has limits to the degree that you're ungrateful. 
You absolutely have limits. There is a set range and you're not going to overcome it. But through the power of God and through having a thankful, consistently thankful heart, you can overcome these effects. When you remind yourself of your blessings, you can't take them for granted. When you see life through a different lens and you focus on the good that you do have, you can't take what you have for granted. But instead of being thankful, we imagine that we can buy happiness. We imagine there, there are other ways for us to be happy. Not just people out there. We do this, those of us who know God. And even though we know we can't buy happiness, we still try. See, advertisers know that feelings of deprivation and discontent have to be created. So how do they create them? Well, they create them through upward social comparison. It's never downward. We, we don't walk around comparing ourselves to people who have less than us consistently. And we know I do it on occasion. Oh, I remember when I went to that mission trip, because that's what you hear when you go on a mission trip. And I was amazed at what the people didn't have. Right. But we don't compare ourselves to them. It's upward social comparison. We compare ourselves to others who have things we don't have. And so they create feelings of deprivation and discontent in order to create purchasing. Because this is, this is a business tactic. Here's the problem. Consumerism fuels ingratitude. There has never been a society or a culture who has had more than America. Like in the history of the entire world, no one's had more comforts. No, we, we have thermostats here. Not just thermostats, we have controlled air in our churches. This is unimaginable in history and in many parts of the world today. You think we're happier for it? Well, you and I both know the answer. See, advertisers and social media users often purposefully provoke feelings of comparison and ingratitude by leading us to believe our lives are incomplete unless we purchase what they're selling or unless we become like them. And your life's not going to measure up until you do. The problem is the target's always moving and you can't ever hit it. So by playing on our fears and our desires, advertising fabricates needs and cultivates ingratitude in our hearts for what we have and who we are. We are constantly led by these upward social comparisons. But what do these upward social comparisons lead to? The research emphatically concludes it leads to depression and resentment. And those two things are everywhere. And by cases of depression and suicide, we have higher rates than we've ever had in our nation, even though we have more stuff than we ever have had. What are the results of trying to purchase happiness? Well, like Romans 1, suffering turned over to vileness in our relationships, in our lives. Psychologists who study consumerism, these are consumerism psychologists, argue that advertising separates children from their parents and spouses from each other. Parents are portrayed as uncool. When was the last time you saw a show that made parents look cool? They're portrayed as uncool. They're portrayed as out of touch with teenage children. And so what are the teenagers encouraged to do? Well, they're encouraged to reject older generational preferences and carve out their own ideas around materialistic values. And what does that do to the home? 
Well, mom and dad aren't cool. And what, they're, what they value isn't in touch. And it drives a wedge between mom and dad and son and daughter. Gratitude for our spouses has a difficult time surviving when we're inundated with sculpted bodies and perfect personalities. We perpetuate sexual desire toward others and we feel worse about our own bodies as a result. And so what happens here? Well, commitment between partners is lessened. Commitment between children and parents and commitment between man and wife, it's all lessened. Why? Because we are on upward social comparison status with everyone else in the world and what other people tell us to think. I'm going to tell you, this sounds so simple, but we don't do it consistently. Gratitude is the answer to a happier and better life. When blessings are the focus, attention is directed away from making comparisons with others who have more. This is proven, statistically proven. Grateful people are less likely to base their happiness on material possessions because they want what they have. Grateful people are less envious of others. Grateful people are less likely to measure success in terms of material gain. Grateful people think different. One man I read about this week decided to focus on gratitude. And so instead of complaining about his old car, he sent small gifts to the mechanics who had serviced his car when it reached 200,000 miles. That's a different way of thinking. Gratitude serves as a firewall of protection against some of the effects of advertising and social media pitfalls. When you want what you have, you become less susceptible to messages that encourage you to want what other people have and what they tell you to want. And all of a sudden, there's this firewall that we build in our, li- build in our lives. And I'm going to tell you tonight, your happiness is tied, ultimately, not to your set point. Your happiness is tied to the presence or the absence of gratitude in your heart. I'm going to work to make just a few points of application and then we'll be done. And the first is simply this. If you want a better marriage, you need to find gratitude in your marriage. You need to find gratefulness for your spouse. See, troubled marriages are full of complaints. Troubled marriages are full of focusing on what the other person isn't and what the other person doesn't have and how they fall short. The default interaction for most marriages is to criticize their spouse or to focus on what is missing. But your failure to be grateful for your wife, sir, and your failure, ma'am, to be grateful for the husband that you're married to is going to lead you to taking them for granted and you're already there. And it will lead you to increased disrespect, resentment, and ultimately contempt. And your marriage cannot survive contempt. John Gottman, who works at the University of Washington, predicts that marriages must maintain, and he wrote a whole book on this, they need to maintain a five to one or greater ratio of positive to negative interactions with each other in order to be happy. The man predicts He brings these people, he did this this incredibly long research based over decades. He brings people into a room and they watch for factors. And they can predict with 93% accuracy 
Couples that will be divorced and they've never talked to them. They're observing body language and they're getting to this point of contempt. And they say this, there has to be five positive interactions to one negative interaction in order for a marriage to be happy. Preferably 16 to one is what they recommend. So don't start counting. (laughs) I did five tonight, baby. I'm going to give you one. One bad one. I got one bad one stored up, right? But if you did count, for a lot of us, unfortunately, it wouldn't be a five to one positive to negative ratio. It'd be a whole lot different than that story. So what's the answer? What's the best way? This is based on secular research from University of Washington, which is like, you know how liberal they are. Or if you don't, they're very liberal. Okay, their suggestion that the best way to create a positivity ratio is to be grateful for your spouse, to find things to be grateful for. See, as a Christian, you can consciously choose to focus on blessings. You can consciously choose to focus your attention and express gratitude. And when you do that, your relationship will be strengthened. And kindness toward one another is possible, but you'll never get there until you find gratitude in your heart for the one to whom you're married. If you want a better marriage, find gratitude in it. If you want healthier and happy kids, cultivate gratitude in their hearts. The most gratitude-challenged group are children. They are notoriously unthankful. Shakespeare's King Lear said, Ingratitude, thou marble-hearted fiend, more hideous when thou showest thee in a child than the sea monster. What's he saying? He's basically saying a sea monster is a lot less terrifying than an ungrateful child, right? Envy and entitlement are much easier to develop in the heart than gratitude and thankfulness. One man in the mid-2000s, Dr. Jeffrey Froh, and a research team, they conducted a gratitude intervention with 221 students in 6th and 7th grade. And the students were assigned to one of three conditions. Gratitude, hassles, and controls. And then, of course, the control group. So one group was asked to list things they were grateful for. One group was, was the control group. And then one group was asked to count their, uh, to be ungrateful, right? To be, to be the hassle group. So students in the gratitude condition were asked to list up to five things that they were grateful for since yesterday. While the hassle group was asked to do the same. So th- five things that irritated you or five things that make you unhappy. And this group focused on five things every day for three weeks. Things that make you grateful or irritants for the other group. The control group was just the measure group. Aside from the counting of blessings or burdens, all students completed the same measure. Data was collected daily for two weeks during the class instruction time with a three-week follow-up, and the grateful children showed this. This is what they said. A gratitude for school. Now, that's highly unusual in sixth and seventh grade. Optimism about their upcoming week. Greater satisfaction about life overall, and they were far less sick than their counterparts. This research team concluded, and I quote, gratitude has both immediate and long-term effects on positive mental and emotional functioning. Gratitude may be a very valuable tool that children can use to negotiate both the ups and the downs in their lives. And we don't focus on it enough. We need it in our marriages. It needs to be cultivated in the hearts of our children And then number three tonight, if you want a happier life, don't pursue more stuff. Pursue more gratitude. See, grateful people notice more positive aspects in their lives. 
They have a positive recall bias. Stressful events happen to us all. And what usually happens after a stressful event? Well, if you talk to my doctor, he'll tell you, because we've had these conversations. Here's a really stressful event. And on the backside of it, you crater emotionally. You get discouraged. You can get low. You can get to a place of despondency. That is ubiquitous. That's human nature. It happens to us all. But those who are grateful, those with a grateful heart, are better able to cope because gratitude builds strength and it builds resilience within us. Gratitude forces us to abandon self-focus because we're thinking about others. It forces us to uh, abandon the belief that the world is void of goodness, that the world is void of love and kindness, but only contains randomness and cruelty, which is where the worldly philosophy leads us to. And we abandon that type of thinking because of gratitude. If there are gifts, if there are goods, good things in our lives, then there are givers. And the world has love and it has goodness too. Gratitude puts us in a better position to bless and love one another. Modernity pushes and forces us and places emphasis on individual autonomy and self-sufficiency. But the self is a very poor place to find happiness and joy. Deep down, in your heart and in my heart, we know, we don't like to admit it, but we know we are dependent on one another for joy. That's why God gave us the church. To meet each other's needs. That's why we're here tonight. Because we are dependent on each other for happiness and meaning. God designed us this way. We are made to be receptive and dependent on the help of others. Dependent on their gifts and kindness. And as such, we are called to gratitude. We are called to give thanks. Because there are many to whom thanks is to be given. You can. Now listen carefully tonight. You can move your happiness set point through a consistently grateful heart. It is grateful people who experience transformative life change. And you're going to have a really hard time doing so without one. I've read a few studies tonight, and if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read one more. This is a book by Robert Emmons, Ph.D. Not our Robert Emmons, another Robert Emmons. Or maybe it is. I don't know. I didn't look at the picture. All right. I want you to listen carefully to this. He says, evidence that gratitude can make a difference over the long haul comes from Martin Seligman's Positive Psychology Laboratory at the University of Pennsylvania. He said, expression may be an especially critical aspect of gratitude. All right. That is social scientist jargon. A preacher would say expression is an especially critical aspect of gratitude. Because they say maybe because they speak in terms of theory. But I'm just going to tell you today, it is. It's absolutely essential critical aspect of gratitude. And I'm going to skip some of these parts here for the sake of time. He said the famed humanist, humanistic psychologist Abraham Maslow discussed the importance of expressing gratitude toward a benefactor. And the psychological tension that results from unfinished business of failing to express thanks toward the one to whom a positive sense of indebtedness is felt. He says, what if people were asked to explicitly communicate their appreciation toward a significant other? And here's the question they sought to answer. What might the effects be of a gratitude confrontation? 
So participants at the University of Pennsylvania that participated in this, this study were given one week to write and then deliver a letter of gratitude in person to someone who had been especially kind to them or had made an enormous positive difference who was still alive. I lost my place. I'm getting Brother John's eyesight problems here. All right. But who had never been properly thanked. If you were going to make a gratitude visit, you did the following. First, you'd write a 300-word testimonial to that person. Concrete, well-written, telling the story of what he did, how it made a difference, and where you are in life now as a result. Then you would call him up and say, I want to come visit you. But you don't say why. It is supposed to be a surprise. About 300 people have gone through the gratitude visit. They say this, this has turned out to be an extraordinarily moving experience for both the letter writer and the person to whom the letter was given. Everyone wept. I'm going to skip a couple paragraphs in this book and come to the conclusion. At the immediate post-test, participants in the gratitude visit condition were happier and they were less depressed. In fact, participants in the gratitude visit condition showed the largest positive changes in the whole study. This boost in happiness and decrease in depressive symptoms were maintained at follow-up assessments one week and one month later. It turned out the gratitude visit was one of the exercises that, to Seligman's surprise, made people lastingly less depressed and happier than the placebo. Now, that's amazing to me. A gratitude visit may not be possible for all of us here. But I want to tell you tonight, you can and you should express appreciation regularly, both elaborately and sincerely, and it will change your life. So what if you did it this week? What if you said, I'm going to break the limits of my happiness set point, and I'm going to force myself to express gratitude? Elaborately and sincerely, I am going to say thanks to someone this week or every day this week. See, you break the bonds of your happiness set point in your life when you see life through a different lens. And last week we said this, gratitude belongs to those who think. And if you remember, we discussed the word reconnaissance how it comes from the, a French, French base word. The inspection of one's life up and down, examining to whom do I owe gratitude? And I'm going to tell you, there's our God and there's a whole lot of people He's put in our lives to whom we owe thanks. Your emotional health and your happiness knows no bounds when we live the kind of life God intends us to live. You will never experience the happiness God intends for you until you become consistently grateful. People in Romans 1 weren't, and you won't either. And I would add this, your happiness will have no boundaries when you become more grateful. And we need to be. Let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.